Thank you for listening to the Christ the King Church podcast. We exist to help people know, love, and obey Jesus as Lord over all of life. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctksensi.com. Amen. God loves his word. He loves his people. And we are going to see that play out right now in front of us. Please turn to Luke chapter 16. We're going to jump back into our series uh, going through the gospel of Luke, coming out of future proof. And of course, uh, what got dropped in my lap is probably the, I don't know if it's the most difficult parable to interpret, but it's certainly one of them. The parable of the dishonest manager. I was talking with Tom Cantwell out in the lobby and yeah, where is he? I don't even, Tom, Tom was like, I don't even know if I remember that parable. It's not one of the ones that you're going to hear uh, too many sermons preached on. It's a little difficult to interpret, but God's going to give us grace and we're going to see what he has for us here. So let's begin by reading verses 1 through 17 and then we'll We'll hear what the Lord has for us. Beginning in verse 1. He also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What do I do? What will I do since my master has taken the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, 100 measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly, write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, 100 measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill, write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. 
Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. So we've got our parable. We've got some chiding from some people who love money. We've got Jesus' response to them. Let's go through it. A note here at the outset. I don't know about you, but I've read this parable a number of times and kind of thought at a cursory glance Jesus was like commending this guy or having the rich lord, the rich master, the rich kurios. Uh, I, I kind of, at a cursory glance, would sometimes think this guy's getting commended for his Ponzi scheme or something, like for his selling bootleg DVDs. And that's not actually, if you look closely, what he gets commended for. He doesn't get commended for dishonesty. He gets commended for, the word is phronimos, but it's translated here shrewdly. Um, or shrewdness. Here's just a couple of other examples of where that word, that word that this guy gets commended for, the thing that he gets lauded for and praised for by God in the mouth of the master in Jesus' story. Here's a couple other times that that word gets used in the New Testament. Matthew 10, 16. Behold, Jesus says to his 12 disciples as he sends them out, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be phronimos. They're translated usually as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. Matthew 7, 24, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, or towards the end, he says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a phronimos, or usually translated, wise man who built his house on the rock. In this gospel, Luke chapter 12, verses 42 through 43, the Lord said, who then is the faithful and phronimos, wise manager, whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. So the thing that this manager is getting commended for and that we are exhorted to is not just grabbing bills and writing down figures that weren't on the original copy. He's getting commended for his diligence, his prudence, his devicefulness, his ingenuity. Uh, Strong's Bible Dictionary, a couple of words that it uses to describe this, this shrewdness. Thoughtful, sagacious, practical skill or acumen, prudent, being mindful of one's interests. If I may, Bengals fans, this is sort of the Patrick Mahomes quality. It's okay, we can admit it. And when the play breaks down and no one gave you an exact script of what to do, you figure something out. You don't just stand there paralyzed with fear. You do something. You understand the goal. You understand that you need to get the ball down the field and that the refs will help you with a holding penalty if they need to. You understand what the goal is. You've got to score so you're deviceful and you're creative and you're ingenious and that's what this guy is. When he was backed into a corner, he did something. He got probably the whole principle of the original loan repaid. Okay, it says 100, write down 80. You're not going to get the interest, my master, but you're going to get some of it back. And now this guy's going to like me, and I'm going to get to shack with him when you fire me. He was ingenious. He was creative, and his master commends him for it. To give ourselves the best chance to understand this parable rightly, let's look at the characters and the situation. When you're reading a parable and you're not 100% sure what is being communicated by our Lord, good place to start. Who are the characters? What's the situation? We've got two characters in this parable. A rich master or lord. That's the word Jesus uses at least once. Kurios, lord. You've got a rich lord. And then you've got a guy who's managing that lord's possessions. Who's managing that rich man's possessions. 
The situation is that the manager is mismanaging. He's doing a poor job. He's wasting possessions, perhaps dishonestly. And then at the end is commended for changing and doing something shrewd or deviceful or ingenious or creative. That's the situation. Those are the characters. When you take that together with what Jesus says at the end, uh, in verses 10 and 11, one who's faithful in very little is also faithful in very little is also faithful in much. I think a, faith, a, a pretty good a faithful interpretation of this parable is this. Govern what has been temporarily entrusted to you wisely. If you're wondering what has been entrusted to you, just check your pockets and look at your calendar and think about what you've got coming to you this week, what meetings you've got scheduled, what errands you've got to run. That's what's been entrusted to you. That time, that money, that the word that is used here a couple of times, mammon, which is sort of a, a Semitic ancient Israelite slang for money, like we used to say dough. I don't know if kids still say dough. Is there any kid in here? Does anybody still say dough? Do people? No? All right. Your resources, they have been entrusted to you temporarily. Jesus says in verse 9, he's talking about worldly wealth. And in the parable, the man does not own the wealth. The manager does not own the wealth. It's not his. He's managing it. That's the govern what's been entrusted to you part. And then at the end, he is commended for his diligence, his prudence, his Patrick Mahomesness. And that is the wisely part. Govern what's been entrusted to you wisely. Also, the wisdom that that Jesus wants you and I to have with our money, with our time, with our resources that we're managing for him is not merely like the Warren Buffett kind of wisdom where you just pick the right stocks at the right moment and you hit and you get a great return on investment in an earthly portfolio standpoint. That's not the kind of wisdom he's talking about. You can see that. He gives us two really good clues. In verse 9, what kind of dwellings does he say that we should use our earthly money to get, to improve? eternal dwellings, right? Jesus says in verse 9 that we should use our money in such a way as to get eternal dwellings. So doing this wisely, managing your money wisely, does not merely mean using your cash to buy you a bunch of earthly friends so that if you ever get laid off, you have somebody to live with. That is not a bad strategy. It's one of the reasons why I had a ton of kids. Because one of them will take me in. They're not all up here, but you heard that, all six of you. But that's not actually the main point he's driving at. He's talking about eternal dwellings. The second good clue he gives us is when he rebukes the Pharisees. So why does Luke record that? Luke record, there were lots of interchanges between our Lord and the Pharisees. We don't get every single one, but Luke records this one. My Lord, Jesus Christ, gave this parable, and then right after, the Pharisees who love money, they started barking at him, and he had a response. His response to them is that the law and the prophets are not void. So the Pharisees, who did not manage their money wisely, who did not manage their resources, their mammon wisely, needed to be reminded that the God of the law and the prophets was still binding. So, translation. If you want to have godly wisdom with your mammon, with your resources, with your dough, if you want to have godly wisdom with managing what God has entrusted to you, then you are to consider your eternal dwelling, like he exhorts us to in verse 9. Think about eternity. Every time you pull that debit card out or that credit card out, or if you're Dave Ramsey, every time you grab one of those envelopes with the cash in it. (laughs) 
I love that Mike just said, yeah. Uh, um, every time you grab one of those, you think about eternity, right? You're not just going up to the store and buying milk. You are doing something that will have ripple effects in your eternity. 10,000 years from now, what you spent that 20 on or that 50 on will have implications in eternity. That's the first thing. And then the second thing is remember that the, that the God of the law and the prophets is not void. Consider your eternal dwelling and devote yourselves to him, not mammon. All right, let's do it verse by verse. It won't be long. Verses one and two. You have a stewardship from God. You do not have a stable of things that you inherently and eternally own. We are bad at this in America. I have not been many places. My passport does not look like Steve Freeburn's. But I've been two. I've been to two other countries, one of which is the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, Haiti. And in a place like that, I think there is a, a common just sense, like down in the bones people know, all this stuff that I have could be gone in a moment. But here in America, where we're, we're fairly insulated. I know things are somewhat tumultuous, but we've all got running water, right? 911 still works. Usually we've got central heating and central air and nice cars that turn on pretty much every time. You ever think about the fact that your car turns on every time you turn the key? Back in the day, horses could die, but my car just turns on every time I turn, I turn the key, except Monday when it broke down on the way home from work. <laughs> but this, this world that we live in, it can kind of trick us as Americans into thinking that this stuff really is mine and nothing can touch it. And that is false. That's an illusion. That's a delusion. It is not yours. It has been entrusted to you temporarily. When I wrote this, I sat for a second on my couch in my office and I looked at my hands and I thought, what had I, what had I done with these hands that day? Had I used them faithfully? Because 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20 says that I don't actually own these. God has the receipt for them. He purchased them with his son's blood. Same thing with these vocal cords. What have I used them for this week? Because they're his. They're his blood-bought resource. Um, there was a uh, boss I had at a prior job, our CFO at a uh, company of a couple hundred people, and it really instructed me in how to think about stewardship when I saw him talk about or manage the employees' 401ks. He took that so seriously, and he would say things like, I am managing people's futures. These are human beings with families and kids and grandkids and maybe great-grandkids someday. And what I do, the, the fees that I negotiate and the investments that I choose, like it's going to impact them. And that kind of good weight that I saw in him, that, that resonated with me. It taught me something. And that's what I'm doing every day with this body that you see here. God has temporarily entrusted to you and to me certain resources. He's given me this heart and these lungs and the childhood of six eternal souls back there. He's given me one of his own daughters that I've been married to 13 years and a house in Bridgetown and a vocation here at this church and a homeschool that we manage and a million other things that China probably knows about because I got those balloons up there. <laughs> All of that is a temporary trust that God has given to me and it's the same thing with you. You and I are going to turn in our accounts someday. Let that sink in for a second. Everything you've got right now you're going to turn in an account to the maker of heaven and earth of how you used it, how you deployed it, how you employed it. This life is not a dry run. It's not a dress rehearsal. We're playing with real money for real stakes here. Do you know that? 
I forget it. There is also a freedom that comes from this. When you realize none of this stuff is actually eternally mine, that is somewhat freeing. I know that it's his, so my job is to please him, not to protect it necessarily in some castle with like walls that are so thick that no one could ever get in. My job is to be faithful with what he has temporarily entrusted to me. All right, verses three through eight, what the guy does. This man thinks critically and deliberately when what's most important to him is at stake. We get really creative when our desires involved. The ingenuity of a human being who actually wants something is one of the most powerful forces on earth. Have you ever seen, when you, when you punish a kid and you're taken away, there's Bubs back there, with Pokemon cards. It's what it is with my oldest son. You, you, hey, you're gonna lose Pokemon cards for a week. All of a sudden, he starts thinking. His mind's going really fast. He's got a hundred reasons why it wasn't really his fault. Maybe I could pick up all the dog poop instead. Maybe I could do this other chore instead of you taking my Pokemon cards. All of a sudden, he's super creative because what he loves, what he wants, is being threatened. We get really creative when our desires are involved. This man knows what he wants. He wants food and shelter, and he won't do manual labor, and he won't beg, but his desire makes him desperate enough to think of and to try something. Get creative with your Christian money and your Christian time. I'm serious. Get creative. Be like this guy. Be ruthless. Be as ruthless in your prayer time, in protecting it, as you are in protecting the time you use to watch your favorite TV show. We all do it. Don't look at me like you don't know what I'm talking about. Right? You, you, your notification time, checking Facebook and Twitter, nothing's getting in between you and that, right? You're checking Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or one of them at least once a day, or your email or your text messages. And I'm not saying any of those things are wrong, but all of a sudden when it comes to our prayer time, we, I just I couldn't squeeze it in. They got away from me. Be creative. Uh, here's a couple of examples of, of ways you can do this. When you're taking a drive, especially if you have kids, play an audio Bible. I started doing this. Bible Gateway has, an, has a dramatized NIV read-through, and I just play it for the kids sometimes. Um, at the end of the night, try singing psalms. I can give them to you later if you want, but there are three musical acts that are doing recordings of every single song, renderings of every single song. My Soul Among Lions, Brian Sauvé, Poor Bishop Hooper. All of them are free on YouTube and Spotify. You can sing one. My kids love Psalm 2 now. They know the words of Psalm 2 because of My Soul Among Lions. Dedicate the time that you use walking the dog or folding laundry or uh, loading the dishwasher to prayer for a specific person. I started doing this. Michael and I met with somebody a couple weeks ago. He said some things about adoption that really rattled me because we're adopting. And I, I started realizing, like, I don't pray for our future son or daughter enough. So now, for the last couple of weeks, whenever I walk our dog, that's what I, I used to check ESPN on my phone while he was pooping. And now... I use that time to pray for sunshine is the, what, we, what we call the kid at Thomas House. I use that time to pray specific things for him or her. It's just a few minutes a couple of times a day, but here it is three weeks later, and now I've prayed, I don't know, 45 minutes, 60 minutes, that otherwise I would have been looking at stuff that doesn't matter, or at least matter as much. Set aside $10 each payday for someone in need, and then ask God, genuinely ask him, God, show me the person who needs this when it's time. Uh, the next time you get some unexpected holiday money, I usually get 200 bucks at Christmas from somebody in our family. Give half of it to a missions organization, a trusted missions organization. Here's one I read uh, a couple weeks ago. I don't know if anybody else heard this story. There's a Christian Alabama man who just died. 
And after he died, it came out that he was going to his neighborhood pharmacy, small town of like, I think, less than 1,000 people in rural Alabama. And every first of the month, he would go in there and give the pharmacist 100 bucks. And he would say, use this for somebody who can't pay for their drugs. It happened because he had been in there one time and he heard that situation. He heard somebody not being able to pay for their prescriptions. So he would just give, and it added up to, over time, thousands of dollars. And there was at least one person who got their diabetic medication because of this guy. He said, don't tell anybody my name. I don't want anybody to know who it is. You tell them, these are his words, that it's a gift from the Lord. And that's 100 bucks a month. I don't know how big of a dent that was in that guy's budget, but over time it ended up saving potentially people's lives. And in the end, a secular magazine in England, The Guardian, published his story and had to put in the part about God. It was beautiful. That guy got creative, right? Be creative in employing what you'll give an account for. Be commendable in your shrewdness. Live like time and money are thoroughly scarce resources. They are non-renewable because they are. Consider your eternal dwelling and devote yourself to the God of the law and the prophets. And if you do that, you will begin to get really creative with what he's authorized you to manage for something like 80 years. Tops. All right, let's look at verses 9 and 13 through 14. In verse 9, he says, Jesus says, and I tell you, so he's talking to his disciples, but this also applies to us. I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, mammon, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Eventually, I don't know which side she parked it on, but eventually that Ford Transit that I bought a couple years ago for Sarah, that I was so proud of the day I bought it, is going to be the recycled metal in some punk teenager's braces. And at that point... All the things that I was so proud of the day I bought it are going to be irrelevant. And all that will matter is what I used it for, right? That's, that's how these things go. We are eternal beings with non-eternal mammon in our hands. So use that non-eternal money and time. Use those non-eternal resources for eternal purposes. It's the greatest return on investment you can have. Not one new feature in that brand new car that you bought is going to still be working when Taylor Swift's grandson is president, right? It's all going to be gone at that point. Everything decomposes. Everything has a shelf life. Everything. So use mammon. Don't be used by it. Worship with mammon, money. Don't worship it. Money is a terrible God. Do not sign your soul, the deed to your soul, over to it. There isn't an object in Kenwood Mall that is worth my faithfulness, my eternal soul. There's not one listing on Zillow I was looking the other day. We were driving through some small town in Indiana. I'm like, like close enough that we would still be here, so it wouldn't mean us moving. But it's like right over the border. And I was, I was like, this would be so great. And I started looking at houses that are out there. I, you know that feeling? We were like, this, this could work. We could do this. It's not wrong, but there is not one thing I could buy with my money that is worth my faithfulness. And I have been tempted before to cut corners to do things that are unethical, to give away time that should be devoted to managing my family or prayer over to making a little more, doing a little more, getting a raise at my last job, getting promoted so that I could buy something that is going to decompose someday. Everything that you can hold in your hands has an expiration date. I used to keep a stack of birthday 20s that my mother-in-law would give me in my top dresser drawer and they would just wait there for a rainy day. According to Matthew 6, 19, you know what those are going to be someday? Moth poop. Rust and moths eat. That's what happens to every bit of wealth you've got. 
Use it, employ it, deploy it. Somewhere right now in your budget, in your budget, not in mine, I'm, I'm talking to you now. Somewhere in your budget or in your checking account or in one of your investment accounts or in a future paycheck is a 20 or a 50 or a 100 or a 5 that is carved in a particular shape. Use it. Deploy it for God. Ask him what he would have you use it for. I'm reading uh, Scott Peter's favorite book right now, War and Peace. And in it, there's a, a really uh, tragic story. One of the main characters is named Bolkonsky, this older man who's had these two kids. Um, and he's, he's loved them in his own way, but for the most part, he has hoarded his wealth. And he gets to the end of his life, and he realizes his daughter Maria is terrified of, of him and that he has not been the kind of father he should have been. And there's nothing he can do about it. He's dying. He's going to die that day. He feels it. He brings her in. He hugs her. He kisses her. And he tells her sorry. And then he dies. And that's the end of it. Wasted life. Wasted fatherhood. And it really messed me up when I read that. Um, I read it to the kids. And it shook me to my core. Because I know there are rewards that I have already forfeited. There are mistakes I have already made with my money, with my time. There are choices I have already made that have eternal consequences. And if you're younger than me, I am really talking to you right now. But no matter how old you are, if you're still breathing, there is time in front of you to do better by God's grace. Verses 10 through 12. Faithfulness needs to be the highest priority for you, higher than achievement or self-fulfillment or competence. We have any achievers in here? Please. Christ the King is filled with achievers. You don't have to raise your hand, but don't act like it's not you. This church is filled with achievers. And I'll probably be one until the end of my days. And it's not wrong to accomplish things. But you know what I mean when I say achiever, right? And I know what I mean when I say achiever. If I, if I get this, if I conquer this, if I win this, if I you know, attain this, it'll be enough. And it'll quiet that voice inside me that's always irritated, always disappointed. And it never does. Faithfulness is my highest priority, should be my highest priority. God entrusts based on faithfulness. Look what he says in verse 10. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And then in verse 11, if then you've been faithful, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? I want God to entrust me with true riches. I want him to entrust my wife and my children someday with true riches. Do you want him to entrust to you someday true riches? then be faithful. He doesn't say be competent. You should be competent. We need air traffic controllers and surgeons to be competent, right? But we are also in a world filled with eternal people worshiping an eternal God, and we are going to have eternal rewards or punishments based on our status before him and what we do in faith. Faithfulness and unfaithfulness. This is, this is key here, by the way, in verse 10, when he says, one who's faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who's dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. Your faithfulness will not be produced by some situation tomorrow. Faithfulness and unfaithfulness, they follow you wherever you go because they flow from what's underneath your breastbone. The, the philosophical, situational ethics games we play, like what would you do if you were in a lifeboat and there was no food? Would you eat somebody? All those things are basically redundant. Has nobody heard that one? <laughs> wow, all right. Alfred Hitchcock, lifeboat. Watch it sometime. 
Those things are basically redundant because you know what you would do if the world was at stake? The same thing you did yesterday when dinner was at stake. The same thing you did last week when the meeting was at stake. If you want to know if you can manage a church, Paul says, look at how you manage your household. If you want to know if you'd be an honorable CEO, take a look and examine whether you're an honorable employee. He who is faithful in little will be faithful in much. In other words, don't wait to work on your character. Don't assume a bigger task or a bigger responsibility will somehow in and of itself create faithfulness in you. You carry your faith, your will, your instincts, your loves with you from Monday to Tuesday, from 2023 to 2024, from one kid to two kids, from team member to project manager. It goes with you. God does certainly grow us through time and trial, but we should not expect to be faithless with little and then faithful once the more comes. Cultivate trust in Christ now, where you are today. Pray and plead and read and think with total reliance on Jesus today, in this job, with these kids, with these health problems, in this house, in this conflict. Don't superstitiously wait for some moment to make you rise to it. That can make for really good sports movies. It's bad theology. There's no magic in some moment where all of a sudden this better you that was just waiting will rise up. Work on it now. In some way, Christian, you are going to be given stewardship over some of what is God's in the age to come. When we judge angels, 1 Corinthians 6.3. When we inherit the earth, Matthew 5.5. When we possess God's kingdom, Daniel 7.22, Luke 12.32. And this is true that there will be no sorrow or competition or envy in the new heavens and new earth. That is true. But so is what I'm about to say. We will not all in this room receive each the exact same thing. The Bible is clear on the fact that our rewards do in some way correspond to our obedience and our faithfulness. Did you earn your salvation? No, you did not earn your salvation. We are saved by grace through faith. And I will not be getting a bunch of credit in in the new heavens and new earth in the sense that God's like... This this guy of his own moral sweat and will and character and self-determination made all this happen. But, but we will be rewarded in some way that's hard to understand now in relationship to what we do, what you did this morning, what I do this afternoon, will correspond to our eternal rewards and our eternal dwellings. There's a reason why he wants us to think about it. All right. Verses 15 and 16 through 17. In verse 15, let me read it. He said to them, the Pharisees, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. That is a strong word. Has anybody read the Old Testament recently and like you read through the Bible time? You get to Joshua and Judges. And you see that word abomination, even Leviticus and where he's talking about what the Canaanites do. You know, you're, God is not merely talking about some ancillary sin that's on the periphery of the human life and human experience. An abomination is something that is horrible before God, that he must rid the world of and he will rid the world of. And he says, what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. To these guys who are religious scholars and their lives probably look from a distance really squeaky clean... He says, what men exalt about you 
is an abomination before me. And they wouldn't know what that word abomination means. They knew the Old Testament. You're calling me what the Canaanites were? Yes. These guys were exalted among men, but men are sinful. Amen? Our field of vision is about as wide as one pay cycle or one speedboat. We have a very limited ability to judge things correctly. Whereas God is sinless and his gaze is wide enough to take in all of eternity. And it's also precise enough to peer right through all of the stuff we project for others to be impressed by. God does not prize what we prize and he does not praise what we praise because his vision is better than ours. I can be, and I'm talking about me, I can be quickly seduced by somebody who is uber competent in a field that I want to be competent in. I can be really impressed by that, that sort of a thing. And God is not impressed with Elon Musk or the Kardashians, whatever their first names are, or Floyd Mayweather. God is not impressed by what we are impressed by. Spend much less mental and emotional energy on what the Facebook photo would show and much more on what an eternal MRI would show. Right now, God can see where you are headed and what's motivating and driving all the choices you make, even the Christian ones. You know how many times I do a Christian thing for a non-Christian reason? How many times I read my Bible out loud to my kids for a proud vain reason. It's better than not doing it. And yet, there is something abominable in my heart that I need forgiven and freed from. What is exalted among men is an abomination before God. Do what you do seeking to please and honor the God who actually exists and to whom you will actually give an account. I play this intellectual exercise in my head probably twice a week. I could die today and God will, I will give an account to him for what I did up until now, 37 years, when I'm with him, when I'm in front of him. And it almost never ceases to make me slow down a little bit. You should do that. Jesus is commending it here when he tells them about the eternal dwellings. There's a reason why Jesus talks about eternal dwellings and eternal destinies and rewards as much as he does. He wants people to slow down and consider Christians, saints, disciples, people whose names are in the book of life from which it cannot be erased. He wants them to slow down and think about the fact that all the stuff we are so obsessed with, that our palms sweat over, in the grand scheme of eternity, either doesn't matter or matters in a very different way. All right, verses 16 through 17, the last two verses. He reminds the Pharisees, these guys who worship money, that his unchanging word is the standard for how well we managed. His unchanging word is the standard for how well we managed. This book, God's word, is not going anywhere. The English language might. There may not be an ESV in a thousand years. But his word is not going anywhere. So conform your investments and your life and the way you spend your money and your time to it. This is the unchanging standard. The Pharisees would have done really well to take all that devotion to their mammon and reallocate it to the God of the law and the prophets. You can get all the return on investment you want out of that tax return, right? You got kids, that tax return's gonna be nice. You can, get, you can get as much bang for your buck on that thing as you want. But when the clock strikes midnight and you die, which you will, turns back to moth poop. 
Everything we buy has a shelf life. And at that point, what's going to matter is what did you use it for? Were you faithful? All that justifying these Pharisees did in front of these men, for these men, all this exaltation they had in front of men, when they died and they stood before God, that had about as much worth as a Blockbuster gift card. It was useless. I had an FYE gift card in my wallet until recently. I'm like, I'm never going to get to use this thing. All right, let me close with just three thoughts. I'll do this quickly. One, Christian, when you pray, when you spend a dollar for the kingdom, when you invest time or money into the kingdom of God, it is not wasted. It's not wasted. So do it. Invest your time and your money in the kingdom of God to the glory of our Savior Jesus Christ, and it will not be wasted. Two, remember at the beginning the implications of the wisdom he talks about. Think about your eternal dwelling. Think about your reward. Think about the fact that you will give an account to God. And also, don't neglect the God of the law and the prophets the way the Pharisees did. Number three, this is the last one, and then I'll pray. If we try to do this of our own will and willpower, we'll fail. You are not going to become more obedient to Jesus Christ at the heart level, at the bone level, just by trying really hard. Everything that is good in us came from him. So we have to dwell on him, relate to him, pray to him, receive grace from him, be helped by him if we are going to do this rightly. We can be Pharisees on our own. That part we can do. We can be exalted among men as religiously squeaky clean and people with big bank accounts on our own. That much we can do. We're all achievers in this church. We can pull that off. But we will not actually please God without faith and the grace that comes through faith. So if you hear this, and you should, you should hear this and want to change. You should want to invest your time and your money more in the kingdom of God. If that's in you right now, I'm asking you to pray to the God who loves you through Jesus Christ and ask him to help you. I'm asking you to think about him and dwell on him and receive grace from him. That's the only way we do this right. All right, let's pray. Our great Father in heaven, who has never forgotten us and will never neglect us, always feeds us. You fed us today through your word. You'll feed us through Lord's Supper in a moment. Our great God and Father, we want to spend our money and our time more obediently and faithfully, full of faith. We won't do it unless you help us. We are sinful, selfish, thoughtless, foolish people in and of ourselves. We love the wrong things and we love the right things in the wrong order but you love to help us. You are a joyful father. Adopting us was your great pleasure. So we're asking for your help. When we leave here today and we spend some money or spend some time, spend some mammon, help us to do it wisely, prudently, diligently. And tomorrow when we go back to work, we raise our kids, we go to class, let us spend our time and our money thoughtfully and wisely and diligently. And then when we're with you, we stand before you, 
Let us have lived in such a way that you can and will say, well done, good and faithful servant. That's our greatest prize, and if it's not, we're asking you to help it be our greatest prize. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We are Christ the King Church. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctkcincy.com.